Welcome to the EcoCiv podcast. This is Austin Roberts. At EcoCiv, we are collaborating with others from around the world who are working toward an ecological civilization. And on this podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecociv.org. Today, Ecosiv's president, Philip Clayton, hosts a fascinating dialogue on the subject of deep adaptation versus deep transformation, with Jeremy Lint arguing in favor of the latter, and Naresh Giangrande defending the former. Jeremy was on episode two of the Ecosiv podcast, which you can find on our website under the resources page. He is a well-known author and a leading theorist of ecological civilization. Naresh is the co-founder of Transition Town Totnes, which was the first transition town in what is now a global movement. Philip will offer a more detailed introduction of both Jeremy and Naresh in a few moments. But for now, I want to briefly provide some context for this episode. In a controversial 2018 article called Deep Adaptation, Dr. Jem Bendel, a professor of sustainability leadership at University of Cumbria in the UK, argued that a large-scale societal collapse is now inevitable as a result of widespread environmental degradation and climate change. Having come to this disturbing conclusion, Bendel then proposed what he called the Deep Adaptation Agenda in an attempt to provide a framework that might help communities adapt to the coming planetary challenges. What is now needed, he suggests, are firstly resilient human societies that can adapt to the coming collapse. The second step Bindel recommends is relinquishment, which asks people to let go of certain behaviors and norms that could make matters worse. Finally, Bindel suggests restoration, which is about rediscovering ways of living and thinking that our fossil-fueled civilization eroded such as changing diets to match the seasons and rediscovering non-electronic forms of play. Bindel's increasingly influential proposal has now influenced some members of Extinction Rebellion and has sparked lively discussions on the subject. Earlier this year, however, Jeremy Lent responded very critically to Bindel's article by arguing that collapse is not at all inevitable and that we need an alternative framework that might inspire and guide us through the challenges of the present and near future. Against Bendel, Lint argues for what he calls deep transformation, which is grounded in a transformative sense of hope that we might still be able to make a large-scale transition to an ecological civilization. Following Lint's counterproposal, Bendel responded to defend the deep adaptation agenda and to challenge aspects of Lint's argument. The ongoing conversation online between these two provocative thinkers has been widely discussed on social media and elsewhere. And at EcoCiv, we wanted to provide a platform for this discussion to continue. So who is right in this debate? In the conversation that follows, Naresh defends deep adaptation and Jeremy argues for deep transformation. Philip asks them to defend their contrasting agendas, whether or not collapse is truly inevitable, what they mean when they talk about collapse, and how each of them thinks about hope in a time of rapid climate breakdown. I hope that you find this conversation as valuable as I did, and that you will share it with others so that we can continue to think through these important questions about our planetary futures in the Anthropocene. And now, here's Philip, Jeremy, and Naresh.
Hello, this is Philip Clayton, and I am the president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. I'm excited to have with us on the podcast today two very significant guests for a very significant topic. Our topic today is the recent discussion between the approaches labeled deep adaptation and deep transformation. Our guests on the podcast today are Naresh Giangrande and Jeremy Lint. Naresh is a co-founder of Transition Town Totnes, the first transition town, and of the Transition Training Project. I probably don't need to describe in detail the significance of the Transition Town movement. It began with one transition town in southwest England and has spread now to become a worldwide movement currently active in over 50 countries. Naresh is often on the road and on the computer screen doing trainings uh, in a variety of different countries. Um, and he asks us also to mention that uh, he's the father of two lovely daughters. He comes from a background in a landscape company, a gaffer in the film industry, um, a teacher of meditation, um, living and working in an eco community, and then over time, moving into this position with the global transition town movement. Jeremy Lint is somebody familiar to listeners of the podcast. He is one of the leading theorists of ecological civilization in the world today, active in publication and extremely active in dialogue with other leading figures in what is becoming a global network for ecological civilization. We will have references to his book and other links to his work on the website. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining the podcast this morning. Let me begin with both of you, but I'll start with Naresh and ask, what is it that leads to your interest in this discussion, deep adaptation, deep transformation? What in your own background and work has made this seem to you an important topic? Let me begin with Naresh. Well, um yeah, thank you, Philip. I, as you mentioned, I've been working uh, at a grassroots level for many years, but in a, in a kind of somewhat paradoxical position where I've been working at a global level, but with grassroots activists. Um, and I've seen such an amazing work done by people all over the world for, for, for many years in transforming their local economies, in creating local resilience, in creating locally resilient lives, in engaging their fellow citizens in, in the deep questions of our civilization and the deep questions of our times. And while I, I see that work carrying on um, in many places in the world, I also see that we are, as a civilization, we are, we are heading for a collapse. So when um, Jen Bendel wrote his paper about deep adaptation, something in that chimed with me, both in terms of uh, what, I, what I see happening in the world, but also um, his description of denial and how I felt that in myself that in order to do this work, in order to cope with the changes I was seeing in the world and, uh, and the deeply distressing um, trajectory of our civilization, I also felt that in myself I, I created a sort of interpretive denial, a, a way of seeing the world. And, and, so, and that's something that 
that Jen describes in his paper, um, which really struck a chord with me. And I, and I think that a lot of people in my position, a lot of people who are working very deeply in this in this field, have. Uh, felt a need uh, at some level, some, some very deep psychological level to, um, despite the fact that we are continually um, paying attention to our feelings and processing the feelings that come up, nonetheless, um, the distressing nature of, of, of our civilization and, and where we're headed uh, it caused me to to create some level of denial of, of the, about the, some of the basic facts about climate change. And uh, unfortunately, um, it's led me to come to this position that uh, I feel that we are we are heading for a collapse. Um, and it's time that we, as um, as activists, but also as a civilization, took that on board. Thanks, Nuresh. That's fantastic. Jeremy, what is it that led you to this discussion in your own work in life? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I sort of came sideways, really, to this whole issue in the sense that I was spending a number of years actually uh, researching for this book published a couple of years ago called The Patterning Instinct. Um, and the subtitle is uh, um, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And it was really a dr um, driven by my own search for meaning over a number of years. And it was only after kind of unfolding where this history led to the modern times, uh, I started to get deeper and deeper into researching what was actually going on in our world. And I was shocked. I just, I was living, I'd come from a more sort of mainstream um, life and news reading where I hadn't even been aware of just how dire our situation was. And the last couple of chapters of my, uh, of my book go uh, um, into this concept of how we're consuming the earth. And then the final uh, chapter looks at scenarios to the future of which one of which is collapse um, but another of which is a potential for what i call in the book like a great transformation that's uh, thomas berry's great words or um joanna macy calls it a great turning and this possibility for um it would really be one of the greatest transitions in all of human history just as big as the one from hunter-gatherer to agriculture, agriculture to the scientific revolution. And I felt really sort of possessed by this notion that each one of us needs to be part of this change. So when I came across uh, the um, notion of deep adaptation, it wasn't even so much uh, Jen Bendel's own article, but as I got to hear people around me and um, how they related to this idea of deep adaptation and read other articles um, bringing it out, I have to confess, I've got to get infuriated because this is not so much to do with Jem's own approach to this kind of concept of the deep adaptation. I saw so many people looking at this and going either one or two sort of ways. One would be this kind of um, what you might call like a throwaway pessimism in terms of like, oh, we're all screwed. So there's no nothing I can do. Let me sort of, um, you know, tend my garden or um, whatever. And the other might be almost called deep despair, which is more like people who have really been engaged in this, really their heart and soul working on it. And it's as though there was this opening to this place of, of despair, which leads, in my view, to something that is kind of dangerously infective in the sense that um, there was one, one article in particular was talking about 
uh, a grandparent who was writing into the author who was saying, yeah, you know, my, my kids, they're, you know, they're teens and they're out there doing the school strike. But fortunately, I've already sort of gotten them to understand. They know that it's not, that it's, um, it's kind of, in, collapse is inevitable anyway. So it doesn't really matter, but it's good that they're out there. And the sense of pulling out that sense of hope and, and energy from a new generation by saying, look, it's all over, just catalyzed me to want to write a couple of articles, really saying, I'm, I'm so with this notion of looking, of getting over denial, looking at how bad things are and how much worse they are likely to get. But to me, that leads to a different kind of response, which I just coined deep transformation. Jeremy, that's, that's great. Let's take a little time to just get clear on the two notions. So, Naresh, I want to give you a minute or two to try to say, what is this phrase, deep adaptation? What does it mean? What does it communicate? What's it saying? Then I'll ask Jeremy to do the same with this notion of deep transformation. Mm -hmm. Just on its own, not in dialogue with anything outside of it, but what's it trying to convey to us? Yeah, first of all, let me just say that there is, as with everything, and I saw it in the transition time movement, there's a, a wide divergence of what people who say are practitioners or believers or or, or people who are, are working in that field feel that that is so so this is my particular take on it i guess um so i think fundamentally it's the re realization we are in a, a climate emergency um it's based on the latest science we all can see our world is changing um and deep adaptation is is beginning to come to terms with those changes mean for us some of the things i see are that uh, our political and economic system is so far anyway unable to mobilize the scale of change needed to ensure our continual survival um, we're going to have to change or repurpose just about everything we do and how we do it um, we're going to have to shift our sense of who we are, that um, this, this um, sense of separation from nature to, to we are nature. Um, and this is just the beginning of a massive step change in all our lives. And we're going to have to come to terms uh, with a lot of change and a lot of loss. Jeremy, deep transformation. What does the term convey? Um, to me, what it conveys is, in fact, everything that Naresh just described in terms of our own uh, recognition of what we need to do within ourselves and within our communities. But there's a whole other layer that, uh, to me, this kind of notion of deep transformation means, which is recognizing that this system that is driving humanity to collapse is one that is not inevitable. It's not like um, something that is just God-given or and then just like some asteroid coming in from outer space that we nothing we can do until it just hits Earth and blows it up. There's something that we as a human race, if collectively working together, can actually transform. And not just that we can transform, but it's the only way in which humanity can look forward to a future flourishing on this earth with a natural world that can be to some degree regenerated from the destruction we're doing. The only way that can happen is by looking at the underlying levers of this um, systematic um, destruction that's going on, recognizing what they are and working together to change them. And I believe that even though that is, it might feel implausible to some, it might feel like a massive undertaking you know, whichever way you look at it, that there is some possibility that can be done if enough of us actually feel the motivation, the connection, and the drive to make it happen. 
let's talk about um, this key notion of collapse that comes out in Bindel's work. He defines collapse as, quote, the uneven ending to our current means of subsistence, shelter, security, pleasure, identity, and meaning. Again, the uneven ending to our current means of subsistence and so forth. Um, can, can you guys make a little bit more clear? What is this, this danger of collapse? Because somebody might be hearing this for the first time and saying, well, that has not even be, been in my vocabulary. Why the focus on this concept? Maybe some concrete examples of what a collapse would look like would be helpful. Nuresh? Um, well, first of all, I, uh, I would say that I would, yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably a good definition of, uh, but I, I kind of like uh, Joseph Tainter's uh, definition of collapse, which is um, a decomplexifying, um, decomplexing, decomplexifying of our civilization. We live in an incredibly complex society. Um, there was this term uh, coined a few years ago called the technosphere, and we rely on this technosphere, this vast um, worldwide, this vast global web of interrelationship and relationships, uh, both economic as well as social and political, to deliver all the, the kind of the basics of life to, um, the, to everyone who's plugged into that system, which is by no means everyone. Um, so the thing that I... And curious about about is is uh, and and which I um, and and why I'm very happy to um, bandy about the 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 term collapse is the first thing I would ask is well collapse of what exactly so if we're talking about collapse of the collapse of this technosphere collapse of this um, global industrial society um, that Orny Ness phrase that I think describes our society very well then um, it's something that. Um, I think is inevitable because it can't continue because what it requires for it to continue is increasing amounts of input. We are already using one and a half Earth's worth of resources and we're, we are not going to be able to carry that on very much longer. How long? I don't know. Um, and obviously the, this collapse um, is, I think, is, is already happening. It's happening in different parts of the world. Um, William Gibson's phrase that, that um, the futures here, it's just unevenly distributed, I think is very apt um, in this um, very fast moving and uh, uh, world that's changing in ways that most of us have not been prepared for. So um, what I see is a, is a very uneven but uh, um, continual uh, decomplexifying of our world um, an inability of, of increasing number of peoples to, to meet their basic needs. Already here in Britain, we have a significant amount of the population who are living on, uh, on food banks. Um, and, and that process is continuing and it's fueling the, some of the ructions we see in our political lives. So for me, that's what I that's what I see as collapsing, and in some ways, that's not a bad thing. Um, it's it's obviously a it's it's a painful thing to put in, in in front of people because, like I said, most of us are dependent on that. 
Um, and, and I think that, you know, when, you know, Jen talked about the three R's, one of which is resilience and how important it is to, to build our personal and our, and our community resilience to, um, um, to enable us to, to carry on um, uh, living lives, of, living decent lives and, 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 and lives in which we are able to continue to work together and talk together and collaborate well. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I'm seeing. Um, and I think that's something that I think a lot of people react to because um, the story that we have in our modern world is is one of continual growth and continual progress. That's yeah. really helpful. Some concrete examples so that people can understand where it's pointing. Yeah. Okay. So, so like I said, I think you're seeing food banks. Um, you're right now. We're we're seeing a collapse in in um, various places in the Middle East, like Syria um, and Syria-Turkey border. Um, you have massive numbers of refugees, um, which I think is is only the beginning of a refugee crisis. What we experience, I think, and this is something I think is important, is that we, we, the three of us here on this particular podcast, are seeing the world through the eyes of, uh, of, of the, the global north, um, people who are most privileged and and are living lives who are, um, who are the most benefit, who most benefit from um, this global industrial system. Um, the people in the global south have been living lives who who have been at the at the sharp end of the extractive technologies. The Extractive uh, industries in our world, and um, they know full well what collapse looks like because that's what their world is. Yes, thank you. That's the crucial point. Jeremy, just what would it mean for a particular system or subsystem in today's society to collapse, and what might be the consequence? Help, help us get that clear in our minds. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Because, you know, in my view, these descriptions we've been hearing, or these definitions of collapse we've been hearing, like, you know, uneven, um, stopping of, of, of things we used to or whatever, feel like more too anodyne because I think that, and I agree completely with what you're describing, Naresh, about the technosphere. And we have this incredibly complex, interconnected set of systems of food distribution and production and communication, everything going on in the world right now. But because of the way that neoliberal capitalism has worked, it's tried to pare down these systems to the most efficient possible, to just get all redundancy out of the system, which means that these massive cities that many of us live in have maybe no more than two to three days at most food supply before those grocery stores run dry of food. You've got billions of people, hundreds of millions, who have no clue how to grow a simple potato, never mind, you know, like that's the food is what you get on the shelf in the grocery store, which comes from these big containers, which only work when everything else is working. So my, whenever I hear the word collapse as uh, described as something that may not be so bad because we've got such a screwed up system to begin with, that's where I get actually quite heated up because really a collapse in this, of this civilization right now means the greatest humanitarian disaster that's ever happened in all of history. It would lead even the destruction of the new, of the new world, of the Americas, by their conquest and the genocide of the Europeans would even be small potatoes compared to the kind of collapse we're talking about. We'd be looking at mega deaths. We'd be looking at the most unbearable like magnitude of destruction. And we'd be looking at the loss, most likely, of every fundamental aspect of our civilization. 
Now, at the end of that, I don't believe like some people think that humans would become extinct. Actually, humans have evolved to be a very adaptive species. And as long as we didn't, and as, as long as part of that collapse wasn't setting off the nuclear arsenal and blowing out all of um, complex life on the earth for hundreds of millions of years, as long as that didn't happen, humans would survive. However, we'd probably survive um, in a in more like sort of bands of um, the level of kind of early agriculture, which means that what we could look forward to a future of untold generations of the same patriarchal, slave-driven, hierarchical-driven societies that thankfully we have somewhat evolved from over the last millennium or two. And even worse than that is the recognition that we only got to this industrial space, which, while it's destructive, also allows us to do things like talk to each other around the world on the Internet. We only got there through using the easily accessible raw materials. They were right there um, for low-tech people to get, like the easy oil and the easy coal and the easy metal and copper. All that's gone now. So the, the likelihood that humanity could ever recreate any kind of uh, technology ability to sort of pull itself out of that hierarchical agrarian type civilization is very slim, which means that the stakes are so high right now. We have to find a way to transition uh, this destructive civilization that I would be every bit as happy as Naresh or Jem or whatever to see um, transformed and gone. Um, but not through a collapse. Somehow we have to thread the eye of the needle and transform our cultural values, transform the economics of the system from within while maintaining this kind of some stability to this technosphere as it transforms into another form. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, but that's the challenge that anyone who cares about the future of humanity needs to look at. Um, before I move on to the transition, I want to ask you about a distinction that Jim introduced and see how that fits into the discussion we're having. Namely, he distinguished between collapse, catastrophe, and extinction. And a lot of people said they're not understanding, especially the distinction between the first two. Extinction is fairly clear. There are no homo sapiens left, no human beings. Um, that doesn't seem to be something that the two of you are pushing, though one finds it on the internet now in some of the recent articles. But what's this distinction between collapse and catastrophe? Do you, does that play a big role in your thinking? Um, I, I choose not to think about it a lot. And uh, I think what, uh, what Jeremy has just outlined is, is um, in fact, um, the catastrophe scenario, which, which I think is unfortunately quite likely uh, because like him, uh, I see so many people in so many very large cities around the world um, depending on the system for the basics of life. And when that system stops working, then there's going to be an awful lot of very hungry, very pissed off people wandering around wondering what to do. And just to be clear, I'm not calling for a collapse. I'm not welcoming collapse. All I'm doing is saying, well, in the absence of anything else and and the absence of any meaningful action to avoid it, just noticing that's objectively where we're headed for. Um, I don't deny that there's a possibility that we could avoid it. I don't see where that's going to come from. And uh, Jeremy also writes about the curveballs of history, which I, I fully agree with. We don't know how the future will unfold. But I'm kind of realist. I'm, I'm, you know, as a businessman, I'm a pra pragmatic person. 
I would like to see some evidence that we are actively doing things at a societal level to avoid this coming collapse. And what I see is there's a scant recognition that we're even headed in that direction, let alone doing anything about it. Jeremy, can I put you, um, as a follow-up to this catastrophe question, a very specific question. Some people have suggested that that there's a sharp should be a sharp distinction between the two terms. But collapse means sort of as Naresh put it nicely a few minutes ago, um, a forced simplification of lifestyles of the way we live. There's no more hopping on jets. There is minimal to no use of cars, electric or otherwise. We're living in a in a smaller area. Most of the entertainment that we rely on is gone. Uh, we are doing our hands are in the soil those of us who are alive to keep us going, but there's somehow we are, there's a continuity of culture, let's say, or in, in a broad sense of the word civilization, whereas a catastrophe would be civilization as we've known it since 1600 or something is just gone. It's impossible to carry out, which is closer to the description you were making of a forced return to early agricultural uh, civilization. Is that a helpful way of putting it, to use the word civilization to contrast between collapse and catastrophe? Well, to me, what is most helpful is uh, trying to visualize what would be a more benevolent or positive transformation from this current system to that simplification. Um, and I think that the real challenge, uh, and I think it's doable, but it's First, we need to conceive it before we can even see uh, like a mass take-up of these ideas, is to actually look at a path toward, from where we are right now in our destructive civilization towards a more positive, um, life-affirming, simplified civilization. Now, I would say, you know, that's why um, I talk a lot about ecological civilization, and I credit you, Philip, and all the great work that the ecosystem people are doing to try to sort of flesh out this possible uh, alternative vision. And that vision, I think, would not be a low-tech vision, but it would be a vision where technology was incorporated appropriately into a life-affirming way of being with um, with each other and with community and with the earth. So as an example of that, um, you know, we could if we have smaller communities together where we're actually much more connected with each other just in our local area, there is a risk that without technology, that kind of ecological civilization could just revert over a short period of time into the same old parochial, um, small-minded, almost medieval-style us versus them uh, stagnation where you just, you're just in your community. That's where something like the internet can be used if you could take the sort of Facebook, what Facebook pretends it's doing, but actually make it for real, where you could actually, the, the notion of sort of complex systems of hub and spoke, where um, most of your connections are with people close to you, but then some connections are with people in other communities all around the world, so that we retain a sense of a global entity of humanity connected globally with the earth and see ourselves as this big interconnected system, even while we're there with our local communities. That's the kind of way that technology can be applied towards a simplified and a more harmonious way of being with each other and on the earth. So I think that what we need to do is try to really unfold a vision of what actually could be possible. And then maybe even more difficult is look at a, a transitional way of moving from where we are now 
to that place. And that's where my hat off to you, Naresh, I have such just tremendous awe and respect for what you've been accomplishing over the last few decades in the Transition Talents Network, which really helps to do just that. Let's turn then toward the transformation that you've given your life to, Naresh, with, with incredible impact. Can you outline the kind of transformation or transition that the Transition Town movement is seeking to bring about? There is a positive vision of humans living on the planet. And if somebody gave you just 90 seconds to say what's the core of that vision, what would you lift to the top? Uh, well, it is a positive vision that together uh, we can put, if we put all the um, extraordinary ability and creativity, and now, it's, as Jeremy says, we have the, we have the internet, we have uh, an immense amount of information at our fingertips, um, we, can, we can co-work and co-create together across time and space, um, it's, it's, we have an extraordinary, extraordinary possibility of using all this human ingenuity and creativity and engineering and science and knowledge and ability to, to take uh, what has been a, a what, is, what is now a, a very destructive civilization and turn that around into something that's constructive and, and life-affirming and, um, and, and in line with um, um, ecological principles. Um, that's, in effect, what, what Transition Town Movement is, is about. And it's, it's about, we see that the simplest form um, is the most important form, which is a step up in scale from the personal to the community level. And then if we work at a community level, we can create um, the this, this sort of local... Um, resilient, very living, very close to the earth, celebrating um, the, the the phases of the seasons, and and becoming that ecological civilization in the place we live with the people we live with, um, and we have the ability to meet our basic needs simply um, but positively with each other. That is beautifully put. People often ask me, is it different to live in a transition town? Is it different when one forms this kind of community? Is one's own existence as a person or as a family different? Is one's mode of being in the world different? How would you answer that question? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I mean, I can only describe it, but, but when, I, when I go into, the, into town, into partners, I... I, I walk down the high street and sometimes a five minute walk turns into a, a half an hour because I see people, they greet me, we talk, we, you know, people have ideas they want to discuss. We, it's, it's, a, it's a living project, uh, Transition Towns. And, um, and we, be, we, we, we create true, uh, what I would call true interdependence. Um, we, we depend on each other. I, we, me and my partner, live here. Uh, also, with my daughter and her, you know, her 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 daughter, um, we we're we're experimenting with inter intergenerational living on a, what I call a small small holding. So we grow a lot of our food uh, and produce a lot of our energy, but we also rely on the people around us for the rest of that energy and the rest of that food and and um and we depend on each other and that that's what it's like to live in a transition town and and that's i think the experience of many people living in transition towns along, around the world jeremy in your publications in your writing in your thinking of the future what is the transformation that you see what is what is human existence through and after that transformation? Yes. <clears throat> well, 
I think in the simplest terms, the transformation I'm talking about is a transformation from a wealth-based civilization that we're living in right now to a life-affirming civilization. That would be um, what we often call an ecological civilization, one that is actually based on the principles of affirming life rather than wealth. And I think that that is the fundamental shift that's required. And, and, it, and it's huge. It would affect every aspect of life. It would lead people to live the, the sort of quality of life that Naresh just described so beautifully in that kind of transition town concept. Um, and it would also affect all these larger economic and global structural systems that we're talking about. And I think, you know, if we sort of expand the scope from, de- from the community to the, this whole global system, it would involve um, taking away this unbelievable power that right now these global transnational corporations hold over the world. You know, we, a, a number of people have become aware that we can't grow forever perpetually on a finite planet and that our system is struck by is stuck in this place of um, needing continual growth year after year. But there seems to be less uh, awareness of ultimately the reason why um, of this, uh, this system that because it's wealth based, the whole, uh, our whole global system is has become dominated by these global transnational corporations. If you look at the largest hundred economies in the world right now, 69 of them are actually transnational corporations rather than countries. And they have a stranglehold over every aspect of human, human life, whether it's not just the economics, but the politics, the culture, the media, the ways in which our choices are given to us. So every aspect of, of our experience, from when we first become toddlers looking at the TV for the first time to when we, when we pass away, um, is dominated by this for-profit society. That has to be understood. We have to look at the levers to dismantle that in order to get to this kind of place we want to get to. Mm-hmm. So let's take a pause where we are in our conversation as we move into the last phase. We've heard how the two of you agree on the problems with the contemporary structure of society. We've heard that you agree that for reasons that science is very clear about, the probability of a collapse of this system is very, very high. We've heard you describe the chaos and death and collapse, catastrophe that that would represent. And we've heard you both describe the kind of vision for a society, a way of humans living in communities and communities of communities after this forced transition um, is made. The listener might ask at this point, so where do these two gentlemen disagree, if at all? Help us see if there's a different interpretation or call to action in the two of your work, where are the differences? Um, well, I, maybe I should sort of kick off because I was the one who sort of stirred the pot, if you will, by writing a couple of these articles that was a refutation, if you will, of, of uh, Jem Bendel's original article and original position about deep adaptation. Um, so um, where I disagree in a couple of things, there's um, a lot of time when Jem actually writes about collapse coming, he doesn't talk about it being likely, but he talks about it being inevitable. And that is a word and a concept 
that really gets my heckles up because as I see it, um, we live in this very nonlinear world where none of us can predict what's going on. And the way in which climate disruption affects our, our whole global economy and politics is very, and is like way beyond any of us ability to actually model it. Um, and we also don't even know, even though I'm, I also see the ways, the unsustainability of our modern civilization, I personally could, don't feel I have any ability to put a time frame on that, on the collapse as, as it's, and even if it, if it were to happen, whether it's 10 years from now or 70 years from now or whatever, I don't, it may be imminent, it may not be. Um, but what I do see is that the actions that each of us take are part of this interconnected nonlinear web uh, that we're all part of. And I feel that there's a real danger that when we start getting into this notion of the inevitability of collapse or just the despair, there's nothing we can actually do. So let's get into this sort of uh, a kind of, and it, I, I don't want to disparage what I'm about to describe because I think it's very meaningful and very necessary for each of us into this place of really feeling into the deepest spiritual senses of loss, the sense of gravity of what is being destroyed, what is being left behind, all that is so important. I've been there myself and anyone, you know, people I'm close with uh, who look at similar things in similar ways are really, it's a struggle to get to that place. But I've been, uh, I feel that it's very, very important to both be there and to move into this place of in active engagement of this of, and actually inspiring others for that active engagement and i feel that each of us especially those of us in the privileged um part of the world who actually you know can engage in these kind of conversations who aren't struggling each day to deal with their form of collapse they're actually looking at right now we it's like we it's not just that we should be doing this we have the absolute moral obligation as long as we have any excess energy any ability to do something is to actually work both to uh, work on mitigating some of the terrible things that are going on right now to natural species facing extinction, people, lives getting destroyed, but also to work on changing this overall system before the thing does unfold into this collapse. So that's my sense is that my fear is that the sort of the very word adaptation gets to this place of, well, I need to adapt to a situation. Deep transformation to me is, no, I'm not going to adapt to this. I, I will adapt in the sense that I will, will work through my inner demons. I'll work through the grief and everything else. And I will goddamn fight to that last breath to try to transform the system. And if enough millions of others go with me, we have a potential to do it. Beautiful. Nuresh, how would you describe the contrast as you see them? Well, um, Philip, what I would want to say to your listeners uh, is that the civilization, the society that you are living in is dead. It's dead, it's gone, um, it's history. And the sooner that, the sooner enough people wake up to that fact, the sooner we can start to discuss what comes next. Um, the idea that we are going to protect and that we are going to transform the existing civilization um, without some level of collapse, I think is fanciful. And, uh, and I think that's where I think people should be putting their, um, their time and effort and attention. Um, we, 
I, I absolutely agree with, with Jeremy that our, the actions we take now are important. Um, and if we're not careful, we will then, uh, we, the actions we'll take will be about protecting the existing civilization, protecting the existing way of life um, to the detriment of something that could, be, could potentially be better. Um, how we manage the collapse and how we manage the, the, the awfulness, I think is also another aspect of the deep adaptation um, uh, agenda, which, which is, um, is f- quite frankly uh, horrifying and scary. And, and, I, and, I, and I have no idea, or I have very little idea about how to do that, except to do the sorts of things that transition towns have been doing for the last 12, 15 years. Um, and, and many people have been doing eco-villages and permaculture folks and whatever have been doing for decades. We are, um, we are in the midst of the most extraordinary disconnect and deep change that we, that we can possibly imagine. And we are only at the foothills of, of what's going to be a, a, a mountain of, of, of change and disruption. So my, my sense is that what we need to do is to think very hard about what we need, what we can protect, what we can save and repurpose for the next stage of, of whatever comes next, um, if indeed something does come next. That's helpful. As I listen to the two of you, I hear a certain difference of emphasis. Your focus has been and continues to be in Russia, building these local resilient communities that can hang on to as much as we can hang on to of quality of human interaction, a quality of life, as you describe it on High Street. Um, re- learn what it is to reconnect with the earth and um, ourselves in, in these smaller communities. Jeremy, your focus... Uh, and also in your book and in your publications, seems to be on these visions for a better civilization. Um, Bidel puts it a little bit harshly when he says we don't need, a, quote, a fairy tale of flourishing societies. Um, in the simplest terms, it almost sounds like the contrast between local and global in when I listen to the two of you. Is that right or is, there, is that not accurate? Well, you know, in my... Uh, conception of the kind of transformation we need. Uh, I don't see it as being only on that sort of global versus local. In my view, what I find is a kind of a helpful way to sort of model the, what is the true transformation to that ecological civilization or whatever we want to call it. And this is kind of to think about like sort of three concentric circles of transformation, all of which, and each of which requires the other two in order for that true transformation to happen. So we can think of the sort of um, smallest circle as being our own internal perception of reality. And a lot of us need that transformation because we've been um, mesmerized by this global media from childhood onwards to believe certain values, uh, to believe, um, even even if we're conscious about things like uh, we don't like the patriarchy or we don't like consumerism or whatever, we've lived that so much, it's in these layers of our deep unconscious. And we have to really um, deeply introspect and use techniques like meditation or what I call um, cultural mindfulness to understand how our ideas have been uh, have been formed and reform them. So that's one area of transformation that's absolutely necessary for each of us. The second layer is 
really akin to what Naresh has been describing in terms of community transformation, the ways in which we relate to others in our community. And I think the Transition Towns Initiative is one of the most brilliant and important ways of giving a model to that kind of transformation that's required. But those two themselves, I would say, are not enough for true transformation. We have to look at this global um, political economic structure and system that has been, it, it's really like, um, if you will, you know, people talk a lot about the threat of artificial intelligence taking over. What happens if AI takes over from humanity? We've set that AI up a few hundred years ago in the form of the corporation. And there's this massive artificial intelligence that is consuming the earth and turning humans into consumer zombies um, that the vast bulk of us don't want. But that is the system we have to recognize and transform by political engagement at that broadest level. And my point is that none of those three can be effective without the other two also happening. Thanks. Nourish, how would you put it? Is that, yeah, how would you put it? Well, I, I would totally agree with all that. I think we need transformation at, at all those levels. And the thing that I have not seen, and um, I fail so far anyway to see a way through to, is that third level that Jeremy describes, the global system, um, the systems of transnational corporations, the technosphere, which I uh, referred to earlier. We, in transition, had this concept that if we transformed our personal as well as our, our community space, um, we could create a sy systems of living that were better than the, um, the systems under, you know, the sort of transnational or global or industrial growth society ways of living, and that we, we could effectively ignore capitalism to death. Um, and... Unfortunately, that hasn't worked. Um, so, as as a as somebody who's who's a um, who's a, a researcher and experimenter um, in terms of a, as a, a citizen researcher in this space, um, I look at the experiments that we've run and I say, well, it hasn't worked. Um, so we need to do something else now. And I, and I'll be damned if I know what that is. Um, although I look at something like Extinction Rebellion that's happening here in the UK and, and in other parts of the world, and, and I see something that is starting to shape some of those structures, um, of the, some of those larger structures. And, and maybe because of the sort of agenda that deep adaptation has put on the, on the, the, the political landscape, that, that, that those things are starting to move. But again, I, 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 I don't know what that, I wish I knew what it was. I wish I could find that. And I wish we could, we could put our energy into transforming those global systems. Um, uh, but I, I, as part from wishful thinking, um, I still don't know what that is. I'd be really interested, given what the two of you have just said, to hear how you would respond to this notion that John Cobb has been forwarding for some decades, which is the notion of communities of communities of communities. So that we start, let's say we started at the town level in, with the concepts and the procedures that Transition Town has initiated and that we're encouraging listeners in, in our links to go and, and familiarize themselves with in more detail. And then we asked, what would be a structure of towns in the absence of um, strong national governments if one was building upward? What would be, a, a, of those communities of communities, how what might they be linked together in a way that the core survival of groups of human beings in a particular bioregion is not weakened, 
but strengthened without reliance on things that the earth simply doesn't have to offer over the long term. Is that, is that similar Arish, to what you're just describing? It, it builds toward the larger, I suppose, in principle toward the global, but it does it sort of from one transition town at a time, as it were, or connection mm. between some set of communities in each case. Well, where do you link to that and where do you push back on that? Well, uh, uh, it's, it sounds good, um, but um, show me a way of that working and show me how that has worked um, anywhere in the world. Um, and I'd be the first one to, to sign up for it. Uh, I, I mean, the thing that, as you were speaking, Philip, the thing that was arising for me is, is um, uh, this, this, this uh, phrase that uh, Helena Norberg Hodge um, uses that um, small is beautiful, big is subsidized. And we live in a world which unfortunately, and, you know, as Jeremy mentioned before, that we, that, that these large transnational corporations, um, the fossil fuel economy has captured our social and political structures. They, they, they garner an awful lot of subsidies, both um, hidden and, and, and in plain sight. Um, and until we, generate the political will to to shift that uh, unfortunately we're going to be living under that those power structures and i don't i don't think that anything we can do at a grassroots level is, is going to is going to change very much jeremy i'm trying to find a way to to make the connection from the local communities since all three of us think that the way the transition approaches it is spot on to the global kind of civilizational language you make is right. Cobb's concept helpful, or is there a different way yeah. that we can bridge the gap? Well, I, I love um, Cobb's concept in terms of a vision of what an ecological civilization would look like, how it would be structured. And it's really this notion of fractality, or like the, the fractal layers of the overall holarchy of the Earth as a living system. And so it's the sense that the small systems are actually part of bigger systems. The bigger systems are only healthy insofar as the health of the small systems are there. But there's also there's a sense, if you look at complex systems and how they work, of both um, top-down and bottom-up, which means um, for anything like an organism, like what each of us are, or any complex system, um, the small parts by interacting affect the whole, and the whole also, um, as a whole, affects each of the small parts. Yeah. So that's a very important concept, this reciprocal causality. And what that, if we look at it, how that applies in this case, it does mean that as well as organizing from the small up, we also need to be organizing from the big down. And I'll, I'll give you an, an example of what I mean by the big down kind of organizing. Um, there's this incredibly um, visionary movement um, called um, Stopping Ecocide. Uh, that um, someone called Polly Higgins founded. She passed away just uh, very recently in England. But this, it's this idea of, of getting the United Nations, the International Criminal Courts, to define ecocide as a crime, um, just like a crime against humanity, so that um, corporate CEOs could potentially be like brought over to the Hague and actually face jail sentences if they allowed that kind of thing to happen. That's the kind of idea of a big vision that could also affect things from top down, just like bottom up. So I think it's important to recognize the ability of both of those. And, and ultimately, um, I, I do want to just bring into the conversation what I think is very important 
interesting concept um, that could be called the Erika Chenoweth number or whatever. Like there's, um, uh, there's this study by um, a social scientist called Erika Chenoweth and her team that looked at all of the, uh, the actual successful uh, movements for political transformation in the 20th century to understand what caused them to reach a critical mass to be successful. What they discovered is two key things. That one, the only successful movements, th th these are for movements for overthrowing tyrannical oppression, such as uh, countries that were um, occupying or a regime that was unpopular. The only ones that were successful were one, nonviolent, and two, she found this tipping point when three and a half percent of the population became really committed to that change, committed enough that they'd be ready to change things in their lives, to really um, get out on the streets, to really make a difference. And that is this tipping point that leads to the ability for the grassroots to actually undo these oppressions from the top. And those are the pretty daunting numbers. Like if you think of the United States, it'd be like about 11 to 12 million people. If you look at Europe, there would be um, more than double that. Like, so, and, but imagine, um, if you look at Extinction Rebellion, what they've accomplished in such a short time, but if you imagine that extrapolated out to this kind of global movement of millions of us, literally millions of us on the street in a committed way saying, we're not doing this anymore, having like strikes around the world against the system, I don't think it's an impossibility. I think that it's a long shot, but a long shot, if that's the only thing we got, I think is worth putting our energy and our commitment into. Beautifully put. That brings us to the, this closing phase of our discussion today and a few final questions. The discussion about deep adaptation and deep transformation uh, has led some people to say, in a sense, they seem like two sides of one answer, two pieces that are crucial for finding a response to the global crisis we live in. The one is realism. This is what the science says, here's what the probabilities are, and here's what global people around the globe don't quite seem to be getting at the level of urgency that it really is. So the harsh realism of the global situation. And the other one is hope. Hope for transition, hope for transformation. Do the two of you think it boils down to two essential pieces of uh, the response that's needed? Or is there something overly simplistic about that, Naresh? Gosh, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I think <clears throat> um, I personally am not without hope. And, uh, and I guess my hope springs from um, living my life in a place where I feel Every day I feel the despair and anxiety of the collapsing ecosystems around me and um, the sort of um, way in which our civilization is, is, is not engaging um, with the scale and the depth of the crisis that we're facing. Uh, and out of that, I, I feel hope that uh, if enough people um, come to that, um, radical despair that um, something approaching hope can come of it. So I, I, I agree with you. I think hope and despair are, are both needed, but hope from not, not from a place of, a, of, of telling ourselves fairy tales and telling each other fairy tales or telling the public fairy tales because we think that's all that they can handle. Um, my... my 
purpose or my mission in life at this moment in time, and and also was at the beginning of the transition times movement, was um, to tell people the truth as far as I could see it. And, you know, I, I don't claim to hold the truth. I can just say, this is the, my truth, and this is the truth of the situation as somebody who's worked in this area for, uh, for 15 years and who has dedicated his life to uh, social transformation, um, that um, your civiliz the civilization we're living in is over. And um, the hope, any hope that can spring from that realization, I would, um, I would, I would truly celebrate. You're nodding your head, Jeremy. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm with you there, and Naresh. And I feel, I, I do feel that those two um, sort of overall uh, sort of domains of experience, that sense of despair and that sense of hope, they're both essential. Because honestly, anyone who really does engage with this recognition, this deep connection with nature, this deep connection with the rest of humanity, this understanding of what's going on, you can't engage in that place without feeling into despair, without feeling into such deep grief that almost feels like, like oceanic, it's limitless. The, just the recognition of the extinction of the monarch butterflies, of um, insects being like demolished, like 96% gone across the world. Like every place we look, baobab trees that have been around for 2,000 years dying all of a sudden. Everything, it's, it's, there's no way to avoid that sense of despair. My point is that that is, I feel, if we can be skillful about it, that despair can then be turned into this catalyzing for absolute engaged action. And when I talk about hope, I always try to make a really clear distinction between the notion of hope and the notion of optimism as a sort of projection for the future. I think the, the real valuable ways of looking at hope are not about um, what is your sense of the probability of some success or, or whatever it might be, but this recognition of hope as a state of mind and even beyond state of mind, um, making the actions that can lead towards a transformed society. That's where I think we can take that sense of despair, take that sense of grief, and turn that into our lived experience day by day. Um, it seems like there's a, there's a kind of hope that the two of you say is, is false, is based on illusion. Then there's, there's a, some kind of hope that one has even in the face of the harsh realism of our global situation. I think of the book Hope in the Dark, mm -hmm. which you, Jeremy, cite at one point. Um, Bindel, Jim Bindel calls it a radical hope, which comes when you give up hopes that are no longer credible. He says it's the hope, quote, that we will find compassion and collaboration in the midst of collapse. It's, you're nodding your head, Naresh. Is that the kind of thing that you're trying to get across to us? Yeah, I think, I think that's yeah. I think that's a very well, very good way of putting it. Uh, uh, putting it, it's it's it is a a, a kind of radical. I, I don't know about I don't know about that term radical, but but um, but it, it is uh, um, for me. It's a letting go of of everything which um, I have thought is good and and right and um, and uh, and the way it should be about the world and a willingness to embrace. Um, a scale of change that um, I previously wouldn't be able to have done myself on a personal level, uh, and and that, and I guess that's what I'm urging um, your listeners to to embrace. 
we always end the Ecosiv podcast uh, uh, with the same question. And I'll ask Jeremy and then give Naresh the last word here. Uh, it's a personal question. What personally gives you hope? What personally gives you hope as two people who know the data and who've devoted your lives to, to responding to it? What personally gives you hope, Jeremy? Yeah, well, what, what personally gives me hope is just a real sort of deep feeling into being alive, into the, the, the mystery of this world we live in, the incredible complexity, the recognition that I could study it and try to understand it for if I lived for hundreds of years and I'd still not even have the tiniest fraction of a real understanding of what is going on all around us in the deepest layers and the broadest layers and the fact that I am alive and that as part of life that every time I wake up in the morning the hope is just part of being alive and being engaged in this drive to help to perpetuate life and all its complexity and beauty in the face of destruction. Beautiful. Nourish. I guess what gives me hope is that, is knowing what I know and living what I, living with what I, what I live with, that love is possible, not only possible, it can flourish in a world which looks increasingly bleak and untenable. That's a fantastic closing line. My guests today on the Ecosystem podcast have been Naresh Giangrande, Jeremy Lint, beautiful exploration of deep adaptation, deep transformation, realism, and hope. Thank you for being present with us, and even more, thank you for the work that you're doing and its global impact. I wish you the best in that work. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Jeremy. Bye for now.